0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's real easy, especially if you're writing and, you, um, and you're and you somewhat successful at it and you keep writing, it's very easy to kind of just get cocooned into your lifestyle. Um, and then what are you writing about, really? I mean, you're just trying to make stuff up. So I try very hard to get out, do things when I can, do weird things.
1: Welcome back to Creative How, the podcast for curious creatives.
2: Today, we've got Greg Garcia. He's probably best known as the creator and writer for My Name is Earl. Uh, Jed, did you know
1: he won an Emmy for that?
2: I did know that, and deservedly so. It was an amazing show. But uh, if you didn't know, he's also been involved in quite a few other successful projects, starting with Step by Step, then Family Matters, Yes, Dear, Raising Hope, and most recently, The Guest Book on TBS.
1: This one's chock-full of info for all you aspiring uh showbiz writers out there, so start taking some notes.
2: So Greg, uh welcome to the podcast.
0: All right, thanks a lot, man. It's uh, fun to do it.
1: Yeah, um you know, we were really excited to talk to you um and just looking at, looking at your body of work, uh there was a lot of angles we could take to this because now you're getting into directing and things like that, but I think uh, we want to maybe try and keep it as pure as possible and maybe focus on the comedy part.
0: Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been doing it for a while and certainly writing is is uh, where I started and uh, I I don't seem to be able to do anything but comedy. But so uh so yeah, let's stick with that.
1: Well, let, let's let's talk about that. Why why do you think why comedy? <laughs>
0: I don't know. You know, I think as a young kid, I always loved to make people laugh. It just made me comfortable. It was kind of my way in with people. I was always a smaller kid, um, so I didn't want to get beat up. So it was important to me to make friends right away in the classroom. And uh, my way of doing that was telling jokes and making people laugh. I think uh, growing up in my household, there was a lot of laughter, and I just took it my cue from my parents and figured that's a way that I'll uh, I'll make my mark uh, to people, and that kind of became my personality. So when it came time to decide what to do for a career, I thought, wow, if I can just stick with that, keep being the class clown, but on a bigger level, uh,
2: why not? So can you describe your sense of humor? I mean, is it like sarcasm, practical jokes, all the above, what do you think? (laughs)
0: I do love practical jokes. I mean, uh, that's certainly, you know, that doesn't really translate necessarily to the writing that much, but it's funny you bring that up because I have been uh, known to pull quite a few practical jokes in my time, and I do... I do enjoy them. I, I always think that no good practical joke uh, is complete unless there's a moment where you just feel completely sick to your stomach and question <laughs> why did I do this? This was a terrible idea. Uh, uh, and then you learn that that's all just part of the package. So you start to embrace that. But uh, no, certainly sarcasm. There was a lot of grow. You know, growing up uh, with the guys I hung out with, there was a lot of just like attacking each other with humor and and so it was constant. Uh, um, you know, insults and and but in a fun way especially, and also in my house too, I think, you know, my dad has taken more grief than anybody in the world. And I learned kind of how to make jokes from my mother and how to take jokes from my father, uh, seeing them, uh, as I, as I grew up. So, um, I guess, uh, yeah, that'd be a, a sarcasm would be, uh, that, that's certainly in, in, in the arsenal, but I'd hope to think that, uh, there's all kinds of different comedy right. that I've uh, been able to use.
1: So you mentioned your parents and your household shaping, um, that part of the, of your sense of humor. What about, uh, movies and and growing up and think what were the big influences?
0: Yeah. So like TV, all I did was watch sitcoms on TV. That's all I did as a little kid. I'd come home from school and start watching sitcoms and that could have gone uh, a lot worse. I know a lot of other (laughs) people that just watched TV all day that didn't end up writing TV shows, but, uh, so lots of TV shows, a lot of, you know, Brady Bunch, What's happening? Three's Company, Sanford and Son. I mean, whatever was on during the day, I would watch it. Um, you know, I've I've said this before, but. I would even at nighttime when it was time to go eat dinner, I would record um, the shows with an audio recorder because we didn't have VCRs back then. And then after dinner, I would go down and listen uh, to what I missed on the audio and I would just play it in my head, which was actually great like practice for directing and stuff because all you heard was the words. You had to put people in the scene and block the scene and figure it all out. So TV, it was all about the sitcoms. Any sitcom that was on, I'd watch it movies. I think the biggest influence for me is the movie Raisin, Arizona. Um, I saw that in high school and I just loved it. It remains my favorite movie. I think there's a lot of, you can find a lot of parallels in, in a lot of my shows and the look that I'm always chasing is sometimes a Coen brothers look. And, and so that was a big one for me. Um, Midnight Run was a big movie for me, uh, growing up that, that, you know, really I saw at an age where, um, I was just wowed by the comedy in that, and the and the uh, the dynamic between De Niro and uh, Charles Grodin, um, and uh, gosh, John Waters movies. Actually, um, I saw them at a young age. I think my mother took me to see actually Harold and Maude when I was like uh, eleven years old or something like that. And uh, that was uh, that was a trip. Um, In fact, I talked to one of the guys in Harold and Maude one time and I told him that I saw it was when I was 11. And he questioned my parents uh, (laughs) parenting (laughs) abilities, which my mom got a kick out of. So I was lucky to be exposed to a lot of like odd and different comedies when I was younger. And so they all made a mark on me.
1: And then, you know, you sort of Took that and and th- these two forces are shaping you, right? When did you actually? When did it click and you say, "Hey, I'm gonna be doing this, and this is what I'm gonna do for my my career." You know,
0: it kind of snuck up on me. I thought I was going to work in radio because that's what I was doing during the summers. I would go home to Arlington. I had to work at WAVA with uh, Don and Mike in the morning, and I'd kind of run around for them, and I would drive this giant radio and go to swimming pools and give away stuff and do little remotes from the pools, and I thought radio would be what what I did. But then I was uh, waiting. I was at Frostburg State University, and I was waiting to register for classes. And a guy next to me said that he was going to take a television writing class. And I didn't know anything about that. And he kind of explained it to me. And, and he said, you write a sitcom script. And having loved sitcoms, I thought, well, that sounds fun. And as an added bonus, they had a... Um, program set up with Warner Brothers where they would send the scripts to Warner Brothers to California, and two people in the country were going to get picked from various different universities to go out to California and and work on a sitcom for a couple weeks, kind of like intern and just hang out in the room. And so I thought, well, heck, I'll I'll, I'll try this, right? So I took the class, and the night before the script was due, I sat down to write it. I was a bit of a procrastinator, (laughs) And um, I decided to write a Cheers spec script and I took a bunch of caffeine pills and I stayed up all night and I wrote it and um, got some laughs the next day in class. And, and I, that, that's when I was kind of bitten by the bug that I was like, hey, this is this is pretty cool. And maybe I had been training for this for a long time by watching these shows. And then I got picked. I was one of two people in the country that got picked and I flew out there for the summer for two weeks and uh, hung out on a sitcom and got to know the writers and talked to them. And, and they thought, they said, Hey, if you really want to do this, why don't you, why don't you drive out here and and give it a shot? So, um, I had graduated that point. I was working for Tony Kornheiser on a sports radio station in DC. And Tony said I could go. And if I failed, I could come back and get my job back. So I packed up the car and drove out
1: to LA. That's a hell of a safety net. Yeah, Yeah, it was
0: pretty, pretty nice of them, right? (laughs) I mean, at first they tried to get me to stay and they offered me a full time salary to stay. And and, uh, but it wasn't quite enough money to give up on your dream. So uh, I was very lucky. I had two parents who were very supportive and said, hey, if you don't try this, you're always going to ask what if you can always come back here. And uh, they were nice enough to give me an old car and send me on my way. And certainly uh, having that safety net of
2: going back to Tony Kornheiser was was uh, was nice to have as well. So in terms of the Cheers script, because I'm interested in in the fact that you got that red and the fact that that was chosen, you know which cast was it? Were you talking about Coach or, or Woody? And and also what was the what was the sort of premise for that episode?
0: I think it was Coach. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Coach. I, you know, the premise is, uh, it was a dream. It was, a, it was a lot of like dream sequences and stuff. I think if I read it now, I'd be like, what are you thinking? Why would you do like a dream sequence episode? But, uh, maybe cause I was so tired when I was writing it, but it was, uh, it was this, I, I, man, I got to go back and read it. In fact, you know, I was working with this director, Jimmy Burrows, who created, uh, cheers with some other guys and has directed everything under the sun. And I was telling him about it and he said he wanted to read it. And I forgot to give it to him because I'd love to get him to just roast me about how (laughs) bad it is. But I do remember there was a lot of dream. There was a whole dream sequence thing going on, but somehow it all tied together and, 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 and I guess it worked.
2: Right, right. Um, so, You know, obviously, you've been doing this for a while and you've got um, you've been part of a lot of great shows. Interesting to know, how is comedy different now or how has it evolved over the years? You know, maybe it's not now versus then, but how have things changed?
0: (sighs) You know, I think one of the biggest things is how many outlets there are now. Um, there's so many opportunities. You know, back when I started, there was three channels, four channels. You know, I mean, and and a lot of the comedies were the same. They were just trying trying to get that broad audience. You know, and now there's so many specific little places that your shows can play that you can really play to like a niche audience. You know, so even like my latest show, The Guest Book, we get very few viewers, but we have a core audience, and so far it's been enough to keep it around. We'll see what happens in the future. But, you know, these shows that would have been canceled immediately are just surviving by just, you know, hitting a smaller audience. So your humor can be a little bit more specific. You certainly still have the shows like The Big Bang Theory that are just going for the broad audience and everything. And I don't think those shows on network TV, a lot of them are that much different than they were 10 years ago. I mean, everything evolves to some point. But I think to really find the new, different, interesting things, um, you're venturing off to Netflix and even Netflix, I mean, they, they do both. They'll do the fuller house or they'll do something edgy and, and crazy. Um, and so it's been fun to watch, you know, not only the comedy kind of evolve, but also the form in which it's told, you know, one of my favorite shows is high maintenance on HBO and that's an anthology comedy and it's just odd and awkward and it's not funny for 10 minutes and then it's hilarious. And, you know, and, um, that's, that's, you know, it's been fun to see people being able to take a lot more chances.
1: When did, um, cause I'm tr- I was trying to think about this the other day and, and pinpoint the, the stylistically, you know, I think your show is considered a single camera.
0: Yeah. The I mean, latest one. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And
1: then, and then the, the traditional, what is it? Two camera setup.
0: Yeah. Uh, four camera four setup. cameras. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh,
1: you know, I was trying to, cause I feel like the single camera is, I won't say relatively new, but I think, you know, Earl had it and I was trying to think of anything before that.
0: Well, you had like Bernie Mac and Arrested Development were on and doing fairly well uh, before Earl. That was kind of my inspiration actually for writing Earls because I was looking to maybe get a job on one of those shows and I wanted to show those showrunners I could write a single camera comedy. But yeah, they didn't have a lot of success. I mean, Andy Griffith's show was a single camera show. Um, uh, you know, the, the happy days started as a single camera show and then went to a four camera show. So there certainly have been single camera comedies way back, but the majority, like you said, were four camera sitcoms. That was what was working. And it was really around the time of Earl that the single camera comedies became more popular. Um, and, and the interesting thing about them is they're a lot more expensive for the studios to make. And so I think that's a lot of the hesitancy in in, in making a lot of them. If they get a four camera show that really works, they're going to make a lot more money off of it than they are a single camera comedy that works. Um, but for me, I don't know about you guys. I enjoy the look and the feel of the single camera comedies better. It just feels more real.
1: Yeah, and I think, and it's great examples in uh, the guest book, man. I think um, some of the cinematography and and being an art director by trade, um, that's the kind of stuff we nerd out on. Um, yeah, I think just the interesting places you put the camera. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, and, it's been it's you know. been fun to like really get into directing and doing that. And and the interesting thing for me is I've always. After My Name is Earl uh, and watching the directors do what they did and the guy, Mark Buckland, who directed the pilot, all of a sudden I was really interested in directing because I wanted to learn what they did and do what they do. And I always thought that like, if you're doing fun, interesting things with the camera, it's not all about the comedy. Like I can fall back on that. Like a show like 30 Rock where they just kind of shoot it fairly standard and it's just joke, 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 joke. joke and it's hilarious. But, like, it's all about the comedy. And, like, I'm never that confident in my comedy. So I like to be able to fall back on at least somebody going, whoa, that looked cool, you know, which is a nice nice little thing to fall back on. And then with the guest book, like you mentioned, a lot of that is the director of photography, our DP. And there was a guy who um, – he was a cameraman on My Name is Earl – And uh, and Raising Hope. And he kept always coming up with interesting shots. So when I got the opportunity to do the guest book, I called him and I said, hey, do you just want to be the DP on this thing? I mean, you're always coming up with great stuff. So that's the first show he's ever DPed. And he just knocks it out of the park. It looks great.
1: Yeah. And, and it's funny you mentioned Raising Hope because the, the hole in the car scene is one that stands out to uh, me. Like, that's all, it was like a, a scene that I was like, well, I've never seen that before. That was pretty hilarious. That's,
0: that's <laughs> funny. You know, the funny thing about that is, well, my grandparents had a hole in their back seat uh, growing up, driving around Arlington. And um, they'd always say, like, don't put your foot down the hole, you know, be careful. <laughs> and so I wanted to put that, incorporate that in something. And I wanted a little kid to stick his head down the hole and it needed like a three-year-old kid. And I was like, man, how am I going to get a three-year-old kid to stick his head? I mean, obviously we had the car on a soundstage and with green screen and stuff, but you still got to stick your head down through a hole in the car with fans going and everything and smile. And how am I going to get a kid to do that? And then I realized, oh shit, I have a three-year-old kid at home. I'll start (laughs) working with him now. (laughs) So I started training him to do it and uh, we would work on it and he would laugh. And so by the time it got time to do it, he did it and it was great. And then he became, uh, He was—he was ultimately probably in like 50 episodes of that show because of it. He ended up getting the job.
1: That's awesome, and he's not the only family member, right? uh, You've—you've pulled every couple people. Yeah.
0: yeah, my oldest son is an actual serious actor. He's he's a theater major at BU. So he's done a few things here and there. My middle son, uh, he, he's not as interested. So I've thrown him in a couple times, but uh, he's not much of a much of a thespian. And then the little one. Yeah, the little ones was in all those Raising Hopes. And then I needed a kid for um, the guest book season one. So he did that but then he told me after that that he was retired. He said he was missing too much school and he's no longer interested in uh, wow. the in the show. So uh so he's retired at the age of 11.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny because um I, you know you I'd read or heard, listened to the one uh, interview where you mentioned your most your best material comes from living life, right? Um so it sounds like you drew already drew from lo- a lot of life experiences talk to us a little bit about that, like that philosophy, because I kind of want you to go a little deeper on that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's real easy, especially if you're writing and you, um, and you're somewhat successful at it and you keep writing, it's very easy to kind of just get cocooned into your lifestyle. Um, and then what are you writing about really? I mean, you're just trying to make stuff up. So I try very hard to get out, do things when I can do weird things. Um, you know, I have worked at Burger King during the writers' strike. You know, just basically to go get material. Um, I just the other day I was I signed up as a as a, on a wait list as a vocational college because I have some time now while I'm waiting to see what's going on with my uh, my next with the show. Um, but unfortunately I got on the wait list to be an electrician, but I was, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to take that class. I just want to go out and do stuff. You know, if I don't finish the class, I don't finish the class, but you never know who you're going to meet, what different characters you're going to meet, get out of your neighborhood, get out of your comfort zone. And, um, and there's always going to be a story some way, one way or another that you're going to come away with by doing that.
2: So are you keeping notes in a sort of regimented way when you're doing all this stuff or what's your, what's your sort of, uh, regimen and technique there?
0: I kind of soak it all in. I have a little file on my computer called Random Bits, and it's probably about 65 pages now. Unfortunately, it was up to like 80 pages. And then like, I lost one of the newest versions of oh, it, geez. but I figure I'll figure it out. One uh, Every once in a while I come out like, oh yeah, that was it. I'll put it back. And it's anything from like a character I saw to a joke I thought of to a little fragment of a story idea. I'm sitting on a plane and I overhear a conversation that's funny. And I just, you know, at the end of the day or all day long during with my phone, I'll just you know, have Siri put it in my reminders or my notes, or if it's a longer thing, I'll pull up my voice memos and I'll just get it all on my phone and then I'll go at the end of the day and I'll transfer it all over to this random bits thing. And so then if I'm writing a script, I'll just go through and just start looking through and looking through and I'm like, okay, I have this, I know I have this character and then I'll just pull things out of that and make a list of like, okay, maybe one of these things could happen or what have you. So I'm constantly just collecting data and, and, you know, some of it I use, some of it I don't.
1: Is that how you organize it by character? Um, well, if I'm actually to the point,
0: I, when I, it's, there's no organization for the master list. It's just in there. It's just like, I just throw it in there. But if I'm certainly like working on like a new script or something, I have the characters, then I'll go grab stuff and maybe put stuff under the characters, uh, to see if anything sparks,
2: sparks anything. So I know we're going to get detailed here, but in terms of the characters, you know, are you, uh, imagining something or maybe even hearing that conversation, like you said, and then thinking of a character and, and then building out a character in terms of physical traits and personality traits or how do you how do you work that how does character development go for you?
0: Sometimes it's different for every character, you know, sometimes, like you said, I've seen somebody and I'm like, okay, I have that person pictured in my head. Sometimes I just picture an actor and I like something they did in something else. So I'm kind of using that as maybe a jumping off point. I'm certainly not trying to steal or take from that or be derivative of that, but at least like an inspiration maybe of like, okay, this is the same type of guy. And so I'll use that. Um, so it's really a variety of things, um, I think I've gotten better at that going, you know, I used to, I think one of my major flaws early on was I would do that for like the main character. And then as I went down the list, I would be less and less um, detailed on who they were. And I'd kind of know less about them and you'd read the scripts and, and, and I'd notice that their dialogue just wasn't really as specific as the main character. And I think over time, I've learned to put in the work in the beginning and really write a bunch of stuff about the character who they are, what they would do in certain situations. Um, Sometimes if I'm just starting a script out and I have two characters, I'll just write a scene with those two characters that's never gonna be in anything, but I'll just stick those two characters in a situation. They're waiting in line at the DMV and one of them is hungry and the other one doesn't wanna go get something to eat, whatever, and boom, and I just start writing the dialogue back and forth. And a lot of times just by forcing myself to do that the characters start to become defined. You know, one character says one thing, and you're like, oh, okay, good. That's this type of guy. That's this type of woman. That's what they would do.
1: Um. So fast forward a little bit to the um, to the script writing process, I guess towards the end, your editing process. How does that go? Do you, who do you bounce ideas off of or who do you sort of test things with?
0: So when I'm working on my own, like when when you're working on a normal sitcom, you've got a group of 12 or 13 people in a room and there's a big collaborative process. And that's the way it was for My Name is Earl and Raising Hope and most of the shows I've worked on. Lately I do this show called The Guest Book and I don't, first season I didn't have any writers, it was just me and second season I have one person that's a writer who looks over the stuff. But um, So that's a different situation for me. But what I do then is I kind of get an idea And I just kind of think about it for a few days. Maybe I jot down some notes. But I feel like once I feel like, okay, there's a there, there, there's a story. I sit down and I write just kind of what's the beginning, middle, and end. And once I feel I have that, then I'll sit down and write a script. And it usually only takes me about a day to just write the whole script. But by a day, I mean like I get up at 6 in the morning And I don't get up from the chair until like four in the morning. Like I get up and eat some food. My wife comes, tells me, Hey, walk around a little bit, but I get focused on it and I just get it done. And then it's not great. But then the next day I go through it again. But then as far as the editing process, now I have like two or three really close friends and writers who I'm like, all right, take a look at this. Tell me what you think. They fire some jokes at me, which is great because I might just have like half a joke and they'll finish it for me or they'll have a great way of punching it up or a different way to look at it for humor. And then I have a couple other people that look at it and are a little harder on me with the story, making sure the story works and and, and what have you. So I have a trusted small group of people that help me out on this show.
2: So you mentioned you, you try to lay out the beginning, middle and end are you literally writing an episode and trying to maintain a certain minute count, a duration, or are you writing long and then editing? I kind of know what the
0: what the page count is. There's always an internal clock in my mind going. So normally as I'm breaking the story, I know kind of what's going to what's gonna be a certain length. And I know that for a single camera comedy that I don't wanna to have to cut a bunch of stuff out later in editing, I like it to be about 28 pages, which can be tough. It's tough to tell a lot of story in that little a time. But for the most part, I kinda of hit that target. A lot of times also I'll be writing and I'll be like, oh shit this is like way too long, but instead of going, if I like everything, instead of cutting it, I just find a way to tell the story faster, either through voiceover or there's always tricks to either tell things shorter or longer. I mean, if you're short, that's great. Let two people argue about something for two pages and make it funny, you know, and if it's too long, that's the beauty of like voiceover or other tricks you can do in single camera that you can't do in multi-camera that you can really condense things and get, get information out faster.
1: I actually wanted to ask you about that, specifically about the guest book. Um, I noticed, and maybe I imagined this, but I want you to confirm you utilized voiceover more in season one than season two.
0: Yeah, there's a good chance of that. You know, part of that might have been. You know, in season one, uh, the all the guestbook stories, not all the guestbook stories. The reason I started doing the guestbook is I had written a bunch of stories in people's guestbooks when I would go vacation or I'd just go away to write in the mountains. And I would leave a crazy story in their guestbook just to amuse myself. And then I'd make a copy of it and bring it home and read it to people. And we'd all laugh thinking about the people that would check in next and be freaked out by the story. So the first season, I'd say seven or eight of the 10 episodes were all from those stories. They all, they all, I just turned those stories into episodes of TV. Season two, there was only two of them, I think that, that I did that with. So I already had these stories written. So I think I tried to use as much of the actual dialogue or the text that I had used in the story in the actual show, just out of laziness, probably. So that translates to a lot of VO because it's one person telling the story. Um, whereas in season two, I just started fresh writing a script. So I'm sure because of that, it turned into a lot less VO. I actually never really thought about that until now.
1: I, I To be honest, I was doing a little of this and then I didn't know if I imagined <laughs> it, but yeah. No,
2: it makes total sense. It makes total sense. Um, so Greg, a couple of the shows that you've written I, f- I feel like you've created them, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but you've created them and given yourself a chance to make them ongoing and to have this framework that's that's a lot different than a lot of other sitcoms. And then of course yeah. you've worked on others that aren't like that. So I guess what do you prefer or what do you like best?
0: I prefer to set up something that has an engine going forward to create stories. You know mm-hmm. when you think about my name is Earl, I mean, the guy had a list for crying out loud. So no matter el- whatever else you were doing in the show, he could always find somebody with a list. I mean, find somebody on his list and go try to cross him off and anything could happen. Anybody could be on that list. Now, at the same time, you're going to tell stories about him and his ex-wife and his brother. And you're going to have different stories as well. But you always have that to fall back on on Raising Hope. They're raising a baby they don't know what they're doing there's always going to be something that comes up now you're still going to be telling marital stories with martha plimpton and garrett Dillahunt, and love stories with the guy and shannon woodward however you always can fall back on what's the parenting story we can do um so i prefer those because you have that safety net and it to me it just keeps it interesting and, and it opens up a whole new world at least in this sense of earl where the stories can go anywhere other ones that are more traditional sitcoms, um, you know, like Yes, Dear, um, that was a more traditional sitcom where each episode was kind of just its own thing. And, and it was usually about raising a kid or, or husband and wife and whatever. We were lucky on that show that we had a lot of different dynamics to play with, whether it's two brother-in-laws, two sisters, different couples dueling, raising kids, whatever. We never really ran out of stuff. And At the time, I was going through those same things in my life, too, so it was easy to draw from my life. Um, And then just one other thing, like the show, like the Millers that I did, which was the last four-camera show I did and probably the last four-camera show I'll ever do, that one, I think that the premise was good in the beginning, of a, a mom moving in with her adult son, having them both been divorced. But then I think it kind of wore thin. And then we were scrambling a little bit to come up with stories. And I think ultimately that was the demise of that show was that we were treading water a little bit. And I think uh, the, the, the actual premise didn't sustain uh, the length of the show. So that's why I like to have that story engine to fall back on.
1: Awesome. Actually, that, that raises a good point, actually something I wanted to touch on, which was the the pitch process, the idea pitch process to, I guess, studios or networks. I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, like maybe from inception to actually going into, if, if that actually happened, you go to a room where you do your pitch.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So like traditionally what you'll do is you have an idea for a TV show. So I will go in. Um, I'll kind of have it all figured out in my head and I'll go into some executives and I'll sit there and then I have 20 minutes to basically get everything in my head into their head and convince them, why is this a television show? And the the goal isn't really to sell them on the first episode, although depending on the show, you may get into what the first episode is. but They're not buying the idea of one episode from you. They're buying the idea of 100 episodes from you. So the idea is to really create this world for them. Who are these characters? What are they going through? Why are we telling this story now? Where is this story going? Where can it go? And then the other thing I like to really hit on is what's personal about it to me? Like, why am I the guy to do this show for you. And if you can really sell them on that, then I think they're more comfortable with, oh, this guy's going to come up with 100 episodes because he knows this world, you know, and and so either it's something like, yes, dear, that I'm going through in my life. So I might just tell stories about things that are happening in my life and then talk about how the characters would play those kind of things out. Or if it's not something that's going on in my life, I might lie and say that it is going on in my life because What do they know? They don't know what's going on in my life or not. If I'm going to go pitch a show about working in an ice cream store, I'm going to tell them that in high school, I worked in an ice cream store. And oh my God, the funny ice cream store stories I have. It's unbelievable (laughs) because at the end of the day, who cares if I'm making them up or they're real? The job's about lying anyway. We're just going to do a make-believe story every week. So I encourage people when they go pitch to lie, but they have to be (laughs) able to back it up. That's all.
2: So- um, Sean and I obviously do a lot of pitches ourselves in terms of the creative work that we do. And um, so I'm interested to know two things from you. What is literally the, the tangible or visual format that you use? And then also when you go up against an executive of some kind who might have a challenge to you, you know, how do you handle that? Well, I mean, you need to be
0: prepared. As far as the challenge goes, I think you just need to be prepared in your pitch. And, and so I like, I encourage questions, you know, hopefully they're not doing it in the middle of it because it kind of messes up your rhythm if you've kind of got an idea and stuff, but I don't mind it terribly if they do. Um, And my approach is hopefully I can answer their question because I've already, I already know what it is. If I can't, if I don't know what it is, but I think for a second. And I can say, well, that's an interesting question. And if I can come up with an answer, then that's great. Or I think it's fine to just be honest and go, I'll tell you what, that's a great question. I haven't figured that out yet. You know, but and I think that's, you know, rather than to just completely try to bullshit and get yourself out of the situation and dig yourself deeper. If you really don't know the question, the answer to the question then I think it's fair to say you hadn't thought about that yet, especially if you have so much other things that you've been, you know, prepared as far as visually um, up until recently, I would never have anything but a piece of paper that I would never even look at. And I'd have the whole thing pretty much in my head, you know, well enough. And, uh, and it doesn't have to be perfect, you know, cause I'd like it to be more conversational anyway. And I would just paint the pictures with, you know, with, with my words. However, lately because I worked with a guy that was doing this and I kind of dug it. And so the last couple pitches, I have had some pictures, you know, just some visual aids. If I'm selling a show that's predominantly about a town, a small town, I might show them a couple small some pictures of some small towns just to get them in my head. When I'm talking about characters, it's not a terrible idea to throw down some actors, you know, people that you think that would be good. I like to throw down actors you're never gonna get in a million years. So that way, look, everybody knows you're not gonna get Brad Pitt to be in your sitcom, but at least it paints a picture of like, okay, we'll get TV Brad Pitt for this thing, rather than throwing down somebody that's gettable and all of a sudden they're like, you don't know in the room, they might be like, we worked with that guy, we don't like this guy. And all of a sudden they're like sour to it. So uh, I like using uh, very ungettable people.
1: If you could tell your uh, young self in those early pitches, one, one or two things, what would you maybe tell him?
0: I don't know. It's a hard question because, um, I think my, my, my first knee jerk reaction would be to tell him to settle down and just relax and everything's going to be okay. And, you know, just, just, just be confident with what you're doing. But at the same time, when I think about it, when I was like young and pitching and it actually worked, I got shows on the air I think there was a certain charm to, you know, I was like in my mid 20s and I'm excited and I'm nervous and I'm pitching, but I still hopefully have good ideas and the stuff got sold. So I, I, I'd hate to think that like maybe, you know, if I'd gone in there and just been like a little more calm and and like it just come across as like cocky yeah. or something like that. So uh, I don't know. I, I think maybe I think maybe I'd be like, uh, all right, you're going to look a little foolish, but just do what you're doing. It seemed to have worked.
2: (laughs) Have you ever really had like a total, you know, flop almost cursed, which we do a lot, but not this time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh,
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I just took out an idea to every single outlet there is and I failed at every single place. Now, some of those some of those went well. The pitch actually went well and I felt great about it. And I was surprised that, that they didn't do it. But a couple of the pitches, I had like two or three weeks in between pitches. And at this point I'd already been turned down a few times and I just totally, I just totally bombed. I like forgot where I was a couple places. Um, no, I've had some, I've definitely had some, some bad pitches, but you just have to like dust yourself off and get to the next one. But you know, it's like being a comedian and bombing, you know, it's all part of it. You try to, like if you're going to go pitch all around town, you try to plan your first couple ones with places that you think are never going to do it or places you don't want to sell it to anyway. And you use those as your practice pitches and hopefully get some of the bugs out.
1: Typically in the pitches, this is getting really granular, but who's in the room in that first pitch? Um,
0: it depends on the place you're at and the excitement of of how excited they are that you're coming in and that's sometimes an indicator of where you stand when you go in the room but uh at the very least it's the development executives um and then you know and then at certain places depending on who you are and how they feel about you you'll get the president of the network um that'll
2: be in there as well so taking a step back um I feel like we've gotten into, you know, you're already almost successful, Greg, and pitching and all that stuff. What can people expect early on? I know that you were a PA at one point. Like, What can a young writer or aspiring writer expect?
0: Yeah, so like, you know, I came out to L.A. because I thought, well, I got to be here if I want to write. And then my next thought was, well, I want to be around writers because I know that it's so much about connections out here. I mean, obviously, you need to have talent and work hard, but there's a lot of connections that need to be made so um, I, I got a job as a PA for the writers and this was before they had email so basically I was email driving around all the scripts to everybody and the actors and stuff and I had to get them lunch and I had to clean their dishes and it was all the crummy jobs but you know I, I think that what people need to know is is um, you know, everybody has to start somewhere and, uh, and you need to be humble and you need to do those jobs with a smile on your face. And, and everybody knows they're crappy jobs. Nobody needs to be reminded of that. And, and so that was kind of my attitude. And what I try to tell people to do is just be positive right from the start. And, and that kind of stuff I think is noticed. And and if you're the guy with the smile on his face, um, uh, washing the dishes, you know, I think that goes a long way to, to get people and get people on, on people's good side.
1: When did um, you, sorry, go ahead. no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to kind of jump in there and just say, you know, when did you, by the time, since at the point you got out there to when you felt like, all right, actually starting to literally make a living doing the writing part, what would you say that time frame look like?
0: I got lucky. It was pretty short for me. Um, I, I got a job as a, when I first came out to L.A. I did extra work actually on Beverly Hills 90210 and some other nice. uh, some other shows and stuff just to just to make money and it was fun for my friends back east to see me walking in the background and stuff. And then I got the job as a PA on a show called Step by Step with uh, Suzanne Somers and Patrick Duffy and and I did that for a year and I thought maybe I'd do that for a while and then maybe become a writer's assistant and get an opportunity to get in the room. And but Warner Brothers had another writers program that I got into uh, at the end of that first year of being a production assistant. And I got into that. And then through a bunch of kind of luck and being in the right place at the right time, I ended up getting a job on a sitcom called On Our Own. Um, And so it was really only about a year and a few months before I was, I was writing on staff on a show, which was incredibly lucky. And, and I was very thankful to the guy that gave me my first job, a guy named Dave Duclan. And, um, and then luckily I was off to the races at that point. I didn't, uh, I didn't have a a season after that where I wasn't, uh, wasn't working. And that was, you know, partially because I met some good people that went to other shows and they were nice enough to hire me. And and I wrote some more samples. I never stopped writing my own material and, and, and that helped me get, uh, get some other jobs.
2: So you mentioned, um, Suzanne Summers and Patrick Duffy, and I'm just assuming that when you were a kid, um, cause we're probably around the same age, they were iconic figures of, of TV shows, so that leads me to the question. I'm sure you've met a lot of people who you either looked up to or maybe maybe were intimidated by. Is that the case? And how do you handle that type of thing when you're a young writer?
0: Yeah, it was a trip, man. I mean, I, I was I, when I was a when I was a PA. You know, uh, I had uh, so Suzanne Somers. Certainly, I watched Three's Company like crazy. Patrick Duffy. I didn't know as much because I didn't watch dramas, really. I mean, I knew him from step by step because that show had been on for a little while. Um, And then you had uh, Stacey Keenan from My Two Dads, who I I had a crush on. I actually went out to lunch with her one day, um, (laughs) which was a complete disaster. (laughs) We had nothing to talk about. But I was certainly like, I was always starstruck from the beginning. And and, and we shared um, offices with the Family Matters writers. And then um, uh Julia White, Urkel, started like just hanging out in my cubicle. Like we were near the same age, you know, and he was a little younger than me, but but he was always walking around and then we started talking and then he would come up and have lunch like all the time. Just come sit in my cubicle and have lunch with me. I and mean, we became buddies and and then when I started working on that show, he was super excited and everything. But so if I think at first it was just like total just starstruck, and then you get to know people and and then you know that kind of starts to wear off a little bit. But I, I still I still get starstruck with certain people and and everything and it's always it's always fun it's usually fun to meet people sometimes it's a little disappointing but uh, for the most part I've had good experiences
1: how About the Cohen brothers, do they are they aware of your uh, fan no, nah,
0: nah, <laughs> I don't think so. No, I'd love to meet those guys someday, but uh, I don't think I'm on their radar, which uh, is understandable. But uh, I I remain a fan. Their latest thing, that uh, ballad of yeah, Sc- oh Scruggs, my god, yeah.
2: oh I love it. It's so I love good. It. Jed, I'm a, I'm a dissenter. Like- ever. I, I liked some of it. What didn't you like about you know it? what the very the very first story from a tone standpoint, just totally messed me up. You know, I, I, when Tim Blake Nelson gets killed and flies up to heaven, I'm like, I don't know what I'm, what I'm watching. I love the Coen brothers. So I'm like, I'm embarrassed every time I say that I didn't really like that's it.
1: That's all right. Everybody's allowed to not like stuff yeah, That's
2: what I mean, that's with
1: that. The, I the table scene where he kicks it and repeatedly shoots the guy in the face I mean, was, was good. My top scene from 2018. It was solid. unbelievable. Yeah.
2: I, I thought it was solid. Um, speaking of the Cohen brothers, so they they've um, worked with several actors multiple times, and I know you have to have the Garcia verse going on. What what draws you to people, um, particularly actors that you work with, and how do you get them to work with you again, or how does that work? I think it's a combination of things. I
0: mean, initially, you know, I like people that just kind of feel real that you don't really see them trying. Um, They just feel completely authentic. Um, And then, you know, once you work with somebody and if you have a good experience, you know, uh, naturally you want to work with them again. So a lot of times, especially with the guest book where we have big guest stars every week, when I sit down and write a character, you know, eight or nine times out of 10, I'm like, this is for Martha Plimpton. This is for Michael Rappaport. This is going to be for Garrett Dillahunt, you know? Um, and then hopefully they'll be available to do it. Um, there's been occasions where I've called just in case, cause it's going to be so specific that I'm like, all right, this is, are you going to be free during this month? You know, if I plan it around this certain thing. Um, so, you know, I, I've been lucky that I've had really good experiences with actors and we always have a good time. That's a big thing on my sets is it's a really loose uh, atmosphere. Um, everybody has fun. And I think that's really helped me with being able to get them to come back because a show like The Guest Book, we don't pay anything. We pay lousy. So it really has to be one of two things. It's either a friend of mine that I've worked with in the past. who's like, you know, I remember calling up Will Arnett and saying, you know, do you want to do this? And he was like, yeah, I'm in. And then he didn't even read the script. And then he showed up and he's like, I'm working seven days all night. Are you kidding me? And he was furious. I'm (laughs) like, dude, you should have read the script. I don't know what to tell you. He goes, I trusted you. Um, You know, so it's a combination of people that I've worked with before that want to come and just have fun for a week. Or then there's people like Jenna Fisher uh, from The Office who I've never worked with before. And um, Michael K. Williams, Omar from The Wire and and, uh, Matt Walsh from Veep. And I've never worked with these people, but Um, they read the script and it's odd and funny and, and at least they think so. And, and so they're, they're game to come do it in some situations they've had friends that were on season one and they've called them and said, Hey, what was this like? And they go, Oh, it was a blast. You got to go. And I do my best to try to host a good party. When they come, they get a big giant gift basket of all kinds of cool stuff when they show up. Cause I know we're not paying them that much. And, and, uh, you'd be surprised how far, uh, how much goodwill, uh, a big box of good caramels and some Bluetooth speakers. And, and, uh, <laughs> we'll, 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 get you for a week.
1: We're going to have to keep that in mind for our war chest as we, larger and larger guests
0: yeah yeah we don't oh, pay we don't pay well yeah i guess i missed the boat on that no, no, one huh? no, no. it's, I, it's, it's in the mail accurate.
1: it's got you know we're in the east coast it takes some time
0: all right fair enough fair, fair enough
1: up right now. <laughs> real quick question how long does an episode take to shoot i guest what
0: Oh, five days. Five days. Yeah, and sometimes, you usually shoot two episodes at a time, so sometimes, oh. uh, like when I said Will Arnett works seven days, like, he didn't work a full seven days, but, like, we had to, like, cross-board it, and, like, sometimes, because a show like The Guest Book is half of the stuff, the interiors are on stage, but the exteriors for the season two were down in Long Beach for all the beach stuff, so rather than just go down there for one day or a half a day, we'll store up two episodes and we'll shoot all our exteriors from both episodes over the course of like one or two or three days. And then we'll go back to the
2: stage. So, uh, but it's pretty much five days per each episode. Gotcha. So Greg, you've been, um, writer, director and producer, and I I guess that, um, maybe that was the chronological progression, but how did that happen? Why did you want to do that? Did you want to do that? You know, was that the plan?
0: Well, the writing stuff, obviously, is where it all started and where it will end. I mean, that's always the, the – the, in TV – the good thing about TV is the writer is in charge, unlike movies where you write a script and you just hand it over to the director and then you go see it in the theater and it might not be anything like you imagine. But in TV, you kind of get to control it from the beginning to the end. Even when you hire a director, you're the director's boss, which most directors are cool with. Some of them don't love it. Um, but you can still kind of have a, a, a handle on, on, on the creative. So writing was always a love. Um, the producing part of it, that just kind of comes with as you get a little bit more successful and you're doing your own stuff they slap the uh, you know the the name producer on you but it it's like I would never produce something that I wasn't well oh, that's not true I mean I have produced things that I haven't written but I produce them as a writer I mean I'm there to help the writing I'm here to help with the script sure there's casting and editing and all kinds of other things you do as well but it really still has everything to do with the writing Um, and then the directing was just something, like I said, once I started, my name is Earl and I was like, wow, this is pretty cool what these guys do with the camera. And I'd like to learn more about this. And, and the first time I did it, I loved it, but I was like, that's terrifying. I'm never going to do that again. Why would I ever direct when I can hire a director? But then I think like childbirth, you forget, uh, the pain of it. And I did it again and again, and the more you do it, the more comfortable you get. And now it's actually sometimes easier for me to direct it because, I'm not trying to get the director into my head because now when I write things, I'm kind of directing them as I'm writing them and thinking about the shots that I wanna do. Um, And so I really enjoy it. I've never directed anything that I didn't write, um, which is kind of like cheating because like I said, when I'm writing it, I already have a vision of what it is in my head. I don't have to take somebody else's script and figure out what they want and what I wanna do with it. Um, Also, like if I'm writing a scene and there's like five people in it, and, uh, I think, oh my gosh, this is going to be impossible. It's going to take forever to cover all these people. I just take three people out of the scene. It's a that's, nice little, tr- nice little trick. So, um, but yeah, that's how all that came about.
1: So is, is, is uh, is all this leading up to longer forms? I don't know. You know, it's funny because that's the
0: question you get a lot. Like I've gotten that many times over the years by just friends and stuff saying, oh, have you ever thought about going to a movie? Like as if like that's the next thing. And the interesting thing is, like I said, with TV, you get full creative control. So um, so that's always been a, a, a lot of fun for me to do. And I think over time. It used to be where, like, yes, TV, and then, like, TVs were here and movies were here, and it was like, oh my gosh, if you ever do a movie. But now it seems to have flip flopped. You know, there's so much great yeah. TV on, and more, more and more people are doing TV and doing cool stuff on TV. I don't have as much of a desire to do a movie, but certainly part of the reason I think I like to direct and have tried to hone those skills is that if I ever do a movie, I want to be in a position where they're also comfortable with me directing it Mm because I think it would be impossible for me to just hand over my stuff and give somebody else creative control. I recently did that when I entered the world for two seconds into the Broadway world and did a um, Jimmy Buffett musical where I wrote the book. And at that point, you kind of you're there the whole time, but you give it to the director and the director is in charge. And I didn't enjoy that as much. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so maybe I'm not a a soul freak. Maybe not movies, but to your point of all the new outlets, I feel like we're in this golden age of content. And maybe as a writer there's never been more opportunity to tell your stories. So maybe split the difference. What about longer form shows like hour long, episodic type things on other platforms? Are yeah,
0: certainly. Know? I mean, I think, I think to me, like I always like to try to do different things. I mean, even the guest book for me, an anthology comedy was not something I'd never done before. So I, I, and I'm not saying I wouldn't want to do a movie sometime because I think it'd be fun to just do it and and say that you've done it. And certainly longer form stuff. I mean, when I first tried to sell the guest book. I was trying to sell it to Netflix or Amazon or, you know, one of these places where the shows don't have to be 20 minutes long. Sometimes that can be very restricting. Uh, you know, I'd love to do uh, a show on the streaming network, uh, where it can be 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever the story actually dictates it, it it need to be. Um, as soon as one of them wants to do one of my shows, I'll do it.
1: And and, and will you have a Jim Carrey moment where you're going to feel the need to get really serious?
0: I don't think so. I mean, I, I, the last thing I went out and pitched, it was certainly a darker, um, it was darker than what I'd done in the past and it was a little bit grittier and maybe that's why I couldn't sell it because people couldn't really wrap their brain around me doing it. However, it was never going to be a Jim Carrey serious move. No, I, 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 I think that, uh, I, I think it would be impossible for me to not try to find the comedy in, um, even if the subject matter was more dramatic, finding the comedy and the characters and the dialogue and what have you, it's just where I go naturally. Maybe if I was an actor, like I get that with an actor where you're just like, I'm sick of being the clown. I'm sick of being the clown. I want to, I want to go out there and prove that I'm a serious, serious actor, which however, I think comedy is harder than dramatic acting anyway. But, um, but as a writer, I don't really have that thirst in me to, uh, to scare people or, or what have you, because the truth is with my shows, I've made people cry, you know, I mean, there's episodes of the guest book that people watch and they laugh and they cry. So I feel like I kind of get best of both worlds anyway.
2: So you just mentioned something really interesting about the challenges of being an actor in a comedy or a drama and probably a writer too. And honestly, we've done some things in the past that um, were meant to be comedic and you don't get the right director or you don't get the right actor. And it doesn't, end up funny. So what is it about, in your opinion, what is it about comedy, whether it's acting or writing, that is harder than drama?
0: I think there's just a lot of nuances to it that are sometimes tougher. I mean, you're, you're putting yourself out there. It's riskier. I mean, you're going... Or a laugh. And that can be a scary, risky thing. You you gotta find that right place to hit. You can't go, you can't fall too short. You can't go too far. You gotta find that perfect spot to hit. Where I think a drama, you know, I, I think there's a little bit more range. Certainly, there's amazing actors who are amazing dramatic actors, but there's a range in there, I think, where the target isn't as small to hit. And to me, that makes it a little easier. And, you know, if you look at a sitcom, the construction of a scene in the sitcom is it's full of jokes. And then you want the scene to end on a joke that was funnier than all the other jokes Mm -hmm. in the scene. You need your scene blow, they call it. Right. And so you can sit there and banging your head against the wall for hours at a rewrite going, we need a blow. We need a scene blow. What is it? What is it? And it's got to be a better joke. Whereas like a drama you can just have someone like kind of look at the camera with a curious <laughs> look on their face. Right. Um, and you got your end of your scene. So I think that ultimately is a little easier to do in my opinion.
2: Hmm. Interesting. You want to go house?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think this has been great. I think we're going to get to, I guess the, the show promise of, of this podcast, which is we call creative house. And the idea is that, somebody who's listening to this in their car or whatever, um, when they turn it off, they'll be armed basically with the three, first three to four things they can do immediately to sort of get on this track. And in this case, um, show business writing track.
0: All right, cool. So here's what I would say. First of all, I don't know if I'm going to perfectly answer this with three or four things, but I'm going to tell you what I think they should do. First of all, it's a global thing. This is what I tell everybody, whether they wanna write sitcoms or they wanna do anything. I always have three lists going in my life, three lists. The first list, I put things on it that I have no idea if I'm gonna achieve, but giant goals. When I was younger, it was like, I wanna buy a house somewhere. I wanna run my own television show. I wanna host my own talk show. Whatever you want, you put on that list and you put that list on the wall. Now, your next list is you're writing down all the things you need to do to get the stuff on the first list. So if it says, I want to run my own show. Well, before you run your own show, you're going to have to become a writer on a show. Okay. If you want to become a writer on a show, how are you going to do that? And then you kind of Just outline it all out. So that list is going to be a lot longer and it has a lot more specific things. And then your third list, you just write Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and you look over at that second list and you pick something off of it and you go, okay, this I could do on Monday, this I could do on Tuesday, this I could get done on Wednesday. And it could be about exercise, life goals, career, whatever. And What's great is you get a little something done every day. And before you know it, you're crossing something out on the second list. And then maybe six, seven months go by, maybe two years go by, and you reach over and you cross something off on on the big list. And you can add stuff to the big list. You can do whatever. But it's just a great way to just always have a visual aid of what your goals are and what you want to achieve. And it's been... Great for me. Now, if you want to be a TV writer and you've never done anything, what I would tell you to do is pick your favorite television show, whether it's a drama or a comedy, whatever it is, what is your favorite show in the world? Sit down and write a script of it, okay? You're going to learn whether you can do this or not. I've told that to a lot of people and they've come back and said to me, I can't get through this. And I'm like, well then maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Go back to your big list and find something else to do. Right. Um, but that's what you got to do. If you can't write a script of your favorite show, it, I don't care if it's, it doesn't have to be good. You just have to get through it, you know? And so, and if you're going to do that, I want you to just think about your characters, think about a funny story you know, you're not just going to sit down and start writing a script. Obviously there's a method to this and there's books you can find about writing sitcoms and stuff. And there's very easily accessible and you can get your format and and figure out how to do all that on your own. But you just have to pick your favorite show, the one, you know, the best, the one you'd be excited about writing for these characters and write a script. That's the first step you got to get done.
1: That's great. That's great advice. And, And talking from a man who's lived it and continues to do it. And
2: it's incredibly hard. So if you can get through that, you're well on your way. What? Where did you get the 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 list thing from? You know, that sounds like something you you found somewhere, but also it seems like it might be self developed. I just
0: self developed. I just I I, re- I did it when I first moved to Los Angeles, and I was just like sitting there, and I was just thinking about all the things that I want to do, and I was like, I better write this stuff down somewhere, and then it just kind of morphed into. I had this one list. It was actually in a little in a little book. And then I just found myself kind of making another list and then breaking it down for a weekly calendar kind of thing. And, and it just uh, it's been tremendously helpful. And I think it, it, it can help people achieve whatever goals they want to achieve, because the hard part is, is everybody sits around and thinks about what they want to do and and dreams about what they want to do. But. You know, you don't go from zero to 100. Nobody nobody just hits the lottery, you know, except for the few people that hit the lottery. (laughs) But, um, you know, so everything starts with one step and then leads to another step. And until you embrace that and just actually do the hard work and the trick is to have fun, have fun getting there, because I had as much fun as a PA clowning around with those guys and thinking about what I was going to be. Than I've ever had, you know, writing and, and, and being successful. So the trick is, you know, you got to have fun in the moment too, or you're just going to make yourself miserable.
1: So I just wanted to kind of tack on to the, uh, the writing of the script of your favorite show. Let's say somebody's written that then, then what do they do?
0: Well, then I would say to show it to your friends and see if they like it, you know, I mean, hopefully people give you honest advice. Um, but then, you know, look, it's a leap of faith. At that point, if you really want to write television, you got to get yourself to Los Angeles. You got to, you got to move here. You're not going to be writing scripts and sending them to agencies blind and thinking somebody's going to say, "Oh my god, finally somebody sent us a script. This is great. Get on out here. We've already got a job for you." <laughs> right. It's just never going to happen. You got to take that leap of faith. You got to if you can if you can write that script and get through it and you're happy with it, then you got to come to Los Angeles. And then my advice always is get around the people who you want to be. Take that job, find a job. And they're hard to get to, but hustle, try to get a job. I didn't know anybody when I moved out here. I just sent resumes to every single sitcom there was, and I got lucky. But then, you know, get around the people you want to, you want to be, and then things start to happen. You know, you have them read your scripts, you get advice from them, hopefully someone takes you under their wing, um, and you keep learning and you keep writing. But you can't you can't become a television writer if you don't move to Los Angeles. That's great, and the weather's right? great. So you know,
2: eh,
1: whatever. <laughs> I, I, I prefer nor'easters. Um, so, two last two questions. Um, do you have any internships available for two maybe early forties white guys?
0: <laughs> well, not currently. I'm still waiting to see if they pick up any of my shows, but uh, but I'll certainly keep you in mind for sure. And, uh, and if I take that vocational class and become an electrician, I could probably use a couple guys to help me like test the wires oh, and make yeah, sure man. they're not.
1: That's or so cool. And yeah. we can do the truck logo.
0: Yeah. And we'll have fun. I uh, guarantee yeah. I don't know how much I can pay, but we'll have a blast.
1: No question. And then, okay. So maybe if you can't offer us internships, how do we get our faces on the amigos day Garcia?
0: Oh, that's suite? a lot. E- that's a lot easier. No, I've just, yeah, I ran out of friends a long time ago. So, uh, so yeah, that's easy. So that you just have to pester me. You just have to uh, wait to see if I get another show on there and then send me a picture of the two of you knuckleheads. And I throw the hats on you in Photoshop and you're good to go.
1: Nice. That's what I'm talking about. Can do. If we left yeah. this show with one thing, it was getting that, that sort of play. Absolutely. No We're
0: amig- I mean, we talked for an hour. We're amigos now. I mean, come on. You're
1: right it. Out. This right is out. awesome. Hey, Greg, this has been amazing. Awesome. And
2: I'm inspired. And also, uh, all of the sitcoms that I thought I could write now I'm going to give it a shot I just have to write a Mad Men episode first
0: yeah do it <laughs> you know that's a good one you'll do a better job than Matt Weiner or Wiener or wow. whatever his
2: name is that's yeah. like what I said about the Coen brothers
1: that's provocative <laughs> <laughs> well Greg again thanks for taking the time man really appreciate it alright thanks a lot guys this was fun Well, that was an episode that if you're an aspiring showbiz writer or even show creator and you have these ideas, this one is going to be probably the most invaluable podcast episode yet.
2: Something really interesting I thought was uh, the way that, that Greg said that he treats people on set and handles productions. And I guess maybe most people would think it would be obvious that people want to have fun, but that isn't always how it goes. And he was really, really down to earth and he didn't need to give us the time of day, but he gave us over an hour of his time and that was really, really awesome.
1: Well, unfortunately, we've uh, we've sort of set a bar here, Jed. Um, one Grammy winner, chalk up one more Emmy winner. I don't know how we go back.
2: I think we need to approach... Uh somebody who's won an Oscar or a Tony or something like that. I I feel like that's the next step.
1: I like both those ideas. We're going to make it happen. And as always check out the show notes, at least for this episode, at creativehowpodcast.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at creativehowpod. Maybe try and hit those like buttons, maybe write a review if you love this stuff. And we'll be back uh, soon with another great episode. As my
2: son would say, smash the like.
1: Hey, Jed. Did you hear our kick-ass intro music? Shockingly, that's out of our technical wheelhouse here at Creative How. That type of sick sound design is a White Noise Lab original. White Noise Lab is a music composition and sound design studio that works with agencies, production companies, and brands on projects for film, broadcasts, interactive websites, corporate videos, video games, and experimental projects. The chances that that movie trailer you just saw on, you know, YouTube that's probably a White Noise Lab original more often than not. So whether you're looking to fulfill your sound design needs or simply need someone to collaborate with on an experimental project or maybe an experimental podcast, check out whitenoiselab.com. That's whitenoiselab.com.